This is in front of, you know, all the high society people that Lupion has invited to this alleged wedding between his daughter and this nobleman. They all get a note saying, oh, the son-in-law is actually a convicted murderer who's on the run. Oh my god, that would be uh, hella embarrassing and a very, very big PR nightmare for uh, I person. don't think that even begins to touch it. <laughs> I don't think PR nightmare really even scratches at the surface of this. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Good afternoon. Good evening to you, sir. Uh, is it afternoon? I mean, I guess it's technically. It's in, that, it's in that sort of liminal space. That's true. There, there are no laws. There are no laws when you're drinking White Claws. Anyway, so we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family. That is humanity. The humanity. Humanity. My god, am I off today. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateur's best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we always try anyway. So, George, who do we have this week? This week, we have a gent named Pierre Picot, who you have probably never heard of. Am I correct? Uh, no. I have heard of this man. Well... I'll, you know, I'll just tear up the not script then. Fine, you've heard of him. Well, anyway, for the lesser among us who haven't heard of him until this, um, he was the inspiration for a book which I know at least I've never read because it's freaking huge, um, The Count of Monte Cristo. If you have actually read it, I commend you. You are better whatever you are than I am. <laughs> Uh, isn't that the book that's written by a guy named Alexander Dumbass? I mean, I think technically it's pronounced Alexander Dumas, but we try not to get too technical on this show. Well, I don't at least. Whatever. Anyway. So anyway, that book that you've never read was made into a movie that you probably have never seen. But it did have uh, Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus in that one movie, and it also had Richard Harris, who played Dumbledore, uh, before he got all that plastic surgery between the second and third Harry Potter movies. <laughs> so, basically, this is there's a movie roughly based on a book that was probably inspired by this story. Is that is that what we're talking about here? Yes. How very succinct. Okay, um, so yes, a few announcements. We rarely do these anymore, but anyway, so I have an- I have a confession to make, everybody. I have, uh... I have gotten myself a full-time job, and that sold means Sold out to the man. That's right, I sold out to the man. Um, so I am going to just give you a br quick heads up on that. It's possible we'll have a change in, uh, in schedule. It's possible that there might be, like, a, uh a uh like what's the word i don't know off um, week yeah an off week but there might be like a a um my god why can't i think of the fucking word <laughs> this hurts this hurts me um yeah well there will be an adjustment phase that's what i'm trying to say uh while i get used to working full transitional Transitional. There you go. And it's potential. It's potentially a night shift, so that will fuck things up even more. But wanted you guys to know about that. Uh, doesn't mean the podcast is going anywhere. It just might change up a tiny bit. But we're used to that. We've we've seen worse. 
Uh, second announcement I would like to make is that we are welcoming, welcoming, my god, Jesus Christ. We are welcoming a new patron this week known as Dylan. And Dylan has decided to contribute to our Patreon because he likes the show and he likes us and he wants us to stick around for a good long while. Um, and I know Dylan has been listening for a long time because we, you know, go back and forth every now and then uh, on Twitter and I can see who's watching the show. Um, Terrifying. So yes, we'd like to uh, we'd like to thank Dylan for joining our unofficial golden horde, as the uh, Mongolians might call it. Um, and uh, at my current valuation of four and a half cents an hour, uh, Dylan currently contributes more than I do to the podcast. This is true. This is true. Um, <laughs> for what it's worth, we haven't cashed out the Patreon in months. Um, ah, wait. this is the real golden horde. I know. <laughs> Oh, nine dollars of it. Pun. All right, so yes, thank you, Dylan. Thank you for that. You are the coolest man uh, on the planet for just joining in. I would also like to make an announcement for everybody else out there who's been with us for a long time. Uh, if you're on Twitter and you frequently see our, our posts on there and that sort of thing, you may have noticed that uh, a certain Sith psychopath has not been uh, responding to anything recently. And that is because he has decided to quit social media. So, just want to update you guys on that. He is still around, he's still listening, and I just had an email exchange with him, which was amazing. Um, but yes, yes, here we are. And then the other thing I would like to, the last thing you might say, I would like to update everyone on how many listeners we actually have. Because up until like, three, or no, yeah, about, about a month ago, I thought we had about 350 or so listeners. Uh, I was wrong. We actually have about 2,000 so, give it up for you guys. And those of you out there who are listening and are like, oh my god, there's so many of us. They have such influence. Well, it's only going to grow. So, like, rate, subscribe. <laughs> and, I guess with all that being said, though, that, that clears it up for our announcements. Um, so, I think it's about time to head down to History Lab. Um, <laughs> I fucked up your joke in the script. <laughs> Typical. Uh, so to all three of you listeners out there, make a cup of your preferred hot beverage, dim the lights, and settle in for a tale of revenge, love, betrayal, and, uh, well, it's mostly revenge, to be honest. <laughs> Down we descend into the darkness. <laughs> that was like the most charming evil laugh I've ever heard. That's uh. the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Oh, man. Have sex, incel. <laughs> In a world which inspired a bunch of weird novels that people trying to seem cultured pretend to have read, my god, a bunch of dis. It's like I need diction classes or something. <laughs> it's like fucking the king's, the king's fucking speech over here. <laughs> In a world which inspired a bunch of weird novels that people trying to seem cultured pretend to have read, a bunch of disturbing stage musicals based on those novels, and a bountiful harvest of unsettling movies based on those musicals, we find one man who got absolutely fucked over 
by the people he thought were his friends. Join us in post-revolutionary 19th century France and see just how far one man will go to get the payback that he deserves. So, Aaron, uh, what games have you been playing lately to whittle away the long, dark hours of these icy winter weeks? Um, aside from a game literally called The Long Dark, uh, I just have to say, you just asked that question in a very suspicious way. Yeah, sorry, with the with the academic year back on, I've had to get back into the habit of making everything pretentious-sounding and unnecessarily verbose. I will try to stop. What games have you been playing lately, Aaron? Uh, Far Cry 5. Um, let's see, what else? I'm playing a lot of Age of Mythology. That's a good one. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. What about you? Um, <laughs> a lot of Mountain Blade, actually. I was gonna say, but you have to say Far Cry 5, because we played for like four hours yesterday. We did, which is why we are recording today. <laughs> In the fact, day before release. Exactly why we are recording today, because this Aaron, the siren, tempted me away from my labors. Oh, yep. I was just like, bro, don't you just want to shoot down cultists and drive around and run people over in a truck? And George was like, yeah. Man. And then after that, we played Far Cry 5. <laughs> Good one. All right. I try. I try. Well, anyway, that is enough small talk or les banalités, as the French say. So call it up, boss. I thought you said you were going to be less pretentious. It was French. It wasn't pretentious English. No, no. French is always pretentious, right? Right. Do you even know how to pronounce the name of the person we're doing today? Pierre Picard. Pico. Pico? Pico. Yeah. All right, uh, that's what I'll have to say to the computer. So here, ah, computer, please bring up Pierre Picot. So let's begin with the old physical description of our boy Pierre. That sounds about appropriate for our show. So by uh, by popular demand, we're bringing back the description switch up and making Aaron describe our character of the day without notes. And when I say popular demand, I mean both Aaron and myself, since we both thought it was kind of cool. I did have a feeling this was going to happen. Well, you were absolutely right. Uh, so please let me know if you get any feelings about the Powerball numbers or the next Kentucky Derby winner. But <laughs> now, uh, here we go. Take it away. And uh, just for fun, I also put a picture of Jim Caviezel as the character inspired by Pierre. So we can, gotcha. we can talk about him, too, if you want. You want to talk about Jim Caviezel? <laughs> the man of the hour. Uh, so, all right, we've got a couple pictures here. Yeah, because um, they're both from shitty scans of like of a police sketch that was then drawn in by an artist and then put in a book that was shittily scanned by some library assistant in the 50s. Ah, I see. So I that's, why, that's why it looks like he's a, literally a stamp. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so here's what we got here. We got a man uh, who's got the profile of, I don't know, he's got a rather long nose, that is for sure, and a rather large forehead as well. He does and have a pretty large forehead, that's true. The scan makes it look like he has ridiculous mutton chops as well. <laughs> um, I hope he does. I could neither confirm uh, nor disprove that. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, he's got this sort of passive look on his face. Doesn't look like he's gonna really hurt anybody. And that he's like a really peaceful guy who wouldn't hurt a fly. I mean, he doesn't look like a violent man at all to me. No, he does. He looks very French to me. Um, mm. It might just be, you know, like the, the 19th century, like, scarf tie thing. Um, but he looks very, very French to me. Yeah. Um, cannot confirm if he has an ear or not, but it looks like there's an earlobe visible in the, in the picture. Also, these, but... these also started out as basically postage stamp size images after all that and so that I did enlarge them so yeah these are literally the worst quality images <laughs> in the history of mankind Aaron's basically tried to describe four gradiently shaded pixels alright fuck it I'm just gonna describe Jim Caviezel here <laughs> first so, first does 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 our guy look like Jim Caviezel since I put them right next to each other he does look a tiny bit like Jim Caviezel similar nose uh, similar mouth don't know about the eyes, though. So, fake Pierre, a.k.a. Jim Caviezel, a.k.a. Jesus, is a stunningly attractive, broad-shouldered man's man. We're talking, Matt, this is a waste of time. We should just get into the story. <laughs> You're probably right. You're probably okay. right. Okay. okay. So I've got to start out by saying that uh, this episode is going to run a little bit differently because there is uh, no biography of Pierre Picot until the series of events for which he is best known. And by no biography, I don't mean that it's a little bit scanty on details. I mean zero. Great. I don't I don't have a birthday. I don't know where he was born. I know literally nothing about him until we get to the main event. Okay. Yep. So since uh, since there's no early life to cover, well, technically, I'm pretty sure he did have an early life. We just know nothing about it, and it probably wasn't very interesting. Um, right. So we're not talking about it. <laughs> not that we can. Um, I thought we'd start <laughs> off by setting the stage for this little French drama we're about to have. Oh, boy. Everybody break out your baguettes. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> baguettes out for Pierre Picot, I guess. Um <laughs> Anyway, so that stage is Napoleonic France, and uh. just to make sure we're all up to speed, uh, here's a little spark notes of the spark notes about Napoleonic France. All right. Get ready. So, uh, yeah, France in the 18th century has a lot of internal issues and dissensions and factions, and lots of people are clamoring for reform of various types um, and this is when France is still a monarchy. Uh, a lot of people have pretty legitimate grievances with the state of society, but then there's also kind of a lot of people who just want to bring down the king, either so that they can try to take power and fulfill some sort of weird power fetish, or uh, to try to forcibly implement whatever weird enlightenment mysticism they were into that week. Uh, <laughs> hey! Yeah, so there's, there's just France in the 19th and or 18th century is just kind of a shit show in many many mm. ways um mm -hmm. so anyway the state ends up in huge amounts of debt at the end of the french monarchy so in the 1770s important years um mm. mm -hmm. and part of the reason they were in so much debt is because they were helping to fund and support the american revolution um because you know screw the british a sentiment we can all get behind 
and anyway, <laughs> with all these debts and lots of different factions and the monarchy not being terribly popular with some parts of society, the whole French Revolution thing ends up happening. And we're not going to go into that today because uh, that's obviously a separate topic. But let me tell you what, folks, it is a really, really, really terrible time for pretty much everyone. We have uh, we have a uh, we have a. Uh delayed coverage of our French brothers for a long time, haven't we? Have you uh, Wait, have you never done one that gets into the French Revolution? We have not gotten into the French oh, Revolution. I'll have to put that yeah. on the list. Um, oh, yeah. I'm sure they were all about lists. Anyway. <laughs> so, um, there's the French Revolution. They murder the king and a lot of other people. And one region that really got the short end of the stick was the Vendée, which is in western France, uh, which is a rural agricultural region. And it's a region where the peasants and the nobles, who actually lived there among the peasants and didn't live in Paris and literally never visit the lands they supposedly ruled, like the nobles and a lot of the rest of France. Um, so the peasants, the nobles, and the clergy all got along really well um, and were generally pretty happy people. And so they weren't really okay with the whole murdering the nobles and forcing the clergy to worship some weird goddess of reason thing that the revolution was doing. And, of course, this results in a rebellion in 1793. And that rebellion over there in the Vendée ended with the revolutionary government committing what many scholars consider the first modern genocide, slaughtering up to half of the rural peasant population of this entire region, all in the name of democracy and freedom, of course. I mean, that's, that's, that's democracy and freedom right there. That's the power of the people, baby. Just killing them. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> Urban intellectuals murdering peasants. That's the revolution <sighs> if I've ever heard of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So eventually all this revolutionary chaos and mayhem allows a certain French Italian from Corsica named Napoleon to work his way up in the military, make himself emperor, because I guess that's the thing you can do, in 1804, conquer pretty much half of Europe, fight basically everyone, finally lose and get exiled in 1814. So yeah, he had quite a, quite a career going um, and he was probably no he was definitely the most powerful man in europe for quite a while that's amazing but after he gets exiled the surviving relatives of the former royal family then get put back into power but before long napoleon managed to come back from exile take up right where he left off and fight pretty much everyone again in 1815 finally got defeated for real this time and put in a I guess, more real exile. I guess it was real because he didn't didn't get to come back from this one. So huh. it's a it's a super chaotic time and everything is really up in the air. We're just revolving through republics and directorates and consulates and empires and monarchies at a dizzying, dizzying pace. Uh, kind of like when a character selection screen is just rotating fat, sorry, rotating because your arrow key gets stuck. And yes, I, repla <laughs> I replaced some keys on my keyboard that was this week, so it's kind of on my mind. Yep. Um, so that's the world of uh, Pierre P Picot. It's, uh, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a mess, and everybody's kind of unsure, like, are we going to have a republic tomorrow? Are we going to have an empire tomorrow? Are we Catholic? Are we worshipping the Church of Reason? Like, it's just this revolving door of bullshit, basically. Huh. So, wait. I have a question. Yes. What's this Church of Reason? Yeah, that was a thing that in quite a few of the uh, leading lights of the revolution were into, um, was that they wanted a, an atheist state church. Or, at the very least, a 
very abstractly deist state church. And they actually invented, like, what the reason church equivalent of, like, the Catholic Mass was, and they brought in a bunch of prostitutes to perform the reason mass in Notre Dame Cathedral, among other things. It was, a, it was like, the most batshit insane enlightenment nonsense. Yeah, because I've heard it. I've heard of it being called the cult of reason. Yeah, they just yeah. took over actual churches to do it in, though. That's so weird. I'll have to dig into that sometime. Yeah, it's it's really fucking stupid. <laughs> Nuanced Fair perspectives. That's what you folks have come to expect. I was gonna say, <laughs> fuck the British. <laughs> yep. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, there's a lot of information about uh, Pierre Picot that is lost to the sands of time since the only sources of this whole debacle are basically notes taken by a couple of different people based on 19th century police files. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit more about how the tale reaches us at the end. Um, don't want to don't wanna burden you all with that now. You'll need to pick yeah. me up at the end of this, trust me. Yep. So... Now the actual, the actual meat of the matter. So here we are in the town of Nîmes. How would you have pronounced that, Aaron? Nîmes. Yes. Nîmes. Nîmes. In, uh, in, in <laughs> yeah, I just, I just remember it rhymes with meme, and then I can do exactly. it. Exactly. Um, send dank memes. <laughs> <laughs> send memes. Uh, so we're in the town of Nîmes in southern France. Sorry, Nîmes in southern France, which is... Uh, <laughs> Screw you. Which is pretty close uh, to the Mediterranean coast. And uh, it's, you know, so it's the warm southern part of France. It's, it's a pretty nice, nice place overall. Nice. The year is 1807. Uh, Napoleon is the emperor. And his empire is pretty much at the height of its expansion and power. It's a lovely sunny day in Nîmes. Uh, the climate is warm. A very good soil in the region has made it an ideal place for the cultivation of grapes and olives. And, of course, that means the production of wine and oil. No, Ooh. no, not that kind of oil. Everyone, CIA, stand down. We don't, <laughs> we do, we don't need a uh, grassroots revolution here. Thank you. Nope. <laughs> so anyway, um, although the many horrors of the revolution are a pretty recent memory uh, Napoleon's very, to be honest, amazing success as a military leader did bring a time of impressive prosperity for many of his subjects, provided, of course, that they stayed in line. Um, hmm. Yeah. So it's, you know, it could be worse. Anyway, so as this nice, lovely day we've sketched out draws to a close, a man named Pierre Picot arrives at the local tavern to see how the vibes were. Um, see what was going down. And Pierre was a was a pretty tall and lean young man who made a living as a shoemaker or sometimes failed to make a living because he was quite poor from what I can see. Hmm. Uh, but he was a shoemaker by trade. And uh, there's actually, from what I can tell, uh, local jokes and uh, proto memes based on how Pico was always broke. I was not <laughs> able to locate any of these original 1807 memes but <laughs> i i have it on good authority that they existed oh good i i someday i hope to find a pico meme <laughs> yep Bur buried in a, in a cellar somewhere <laughs> brush anyway, it off <laughs> so there in 1807 um pico who's known for being broke arrives at the tavern dressed in whatever the 1807 equivalent of a popped collar was looking absolutely fly 
awesome. Yep. It's, prob- it's probably one of those, like, weird lacy things. I don't, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. So when uh, when Pierre entered the tavern, um, which he was a regular there, this was his usual spot, um, he encountered some familiar faces. And they were Matthew Lupion, who was the owner of the tavern slash inn, Gervais Chaubert, who owned and rented mules for farm work in the area, Guillaume Soulary, a local laborer who I couldn't find what the hell his job was, and <laughs> Antoine Alou, who was a very large and jacked farmer who was known for getting into fights with people. Oh, man. <laughs> this yeah. is a good start. Good setup here. Jacked farmers getting into fights. I mean, that's, uh, that's the stuff of legend right there. Yep. So anyway, so this was the usual crowd that uh, Pierre usually sat and drank with and conversed with in the evenings. So there was nothing unusual, you know, seeing them all together there. It's it's the routine. Um, but he, on the other hand, was unusual since he's got the popped collar and the puffy jacket and everything. And so obviously the guys want to know what the occasion is and if there was, you know, some sort of party they hadn't heard about that he's going to. And Pierre is uh, very, very excited because he has some exciting news for the guys. So he tells them that he is going on a date with his girlfriend. What? I, I know. This, this obviously caused an uproar among the dudes who had no idea old Pierre was seeing someone. You know, so the questions are flying. Who is she? Where is she from? All the usual questions, in addition to the rather mean but sort of understandable question, how can you afford a relationship when you're always broke? Oh, me, IRL. Oh, oh. <laughs> I know, that, that one does hit close to home. Yep. <laughs> but uh, Pierre, knowing that the, you know, knowing the awkwardness that social media stalking and semi-friendly practical jokes can have, um, refused to tell the guys who the woman he was courting was. Hmm, suspicious. So uh, the innkeeper, Lupion, said, um, Courtine, who is a girl who will flirt with you when you cannot even buy her a silken shawl? <laughs> Never heard you do a French accent, but that was pretty good, not gonna lie. Yeah, I know, I, I picked it up because I, at one point, had actual French friends and I used to make fun of them. <laughs> <laughs> And so I would just exaggerate everything they sounded like. I think that's I think that's one of my favorite things about going to another country. Is like like when I went to Britain, they were like they were like, dude, do a British accent, do your best. I'm like, no, you do an American accent. And they'd try to do the American accent and they just sound like like Kanye West. <laughs> and then I'd do my British accent, and they'd be like, You sound like a British um RAF pilot from World War II. And I'm like, well, it's the best I can do. <laughs> Brilliant. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so uh, Pierre stayed firm and wouldn't budge on telling them who the girl was. So the four others, wordlessly communicating amongst themselves by eye contact, knew what they'd have to do to get a hold of this potentially juicy gossip to tweet about. So, as you probably guessed it, they pretended to drop it and just be happy for Pierre and poured round after round of what the sources say was wine, but I like to think was fireball. Uh-huh, probably. <laughs> probably, yeah. And soon enough, Pierre was drunk off his croissant and <laughs> stood unsteadily up at the table and slurred out, and this one's to you, Aaron, drunken Frenchman voice. Oh, I gotta do this one? Drunken Frenchman? Oh. Well, then if you must know, 
Drink to the hell. I'm turning I said into French, Spanish. not Portuguese. Fu I can't fucking do it. <laughs> Doink. Twas, now it's doing German. Damn it. I can't even think of what a French person sounds like. I've never even seen one in my life. Okay, okay, okay fine. I'll do it. Well then, if you must know, drink to the health of Marguerite de Vigoro, my betrothed. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, so, he gave it up. He so gave he up gave the up secret the documents. <laughs> he gave up the name. Yeah, so obviously oh. the much-awaited name drop threw the table into confusion and questions were shouted every which way because Marguerite was a name that they recognized. She was a well-known local heiress to a very large estate and uh, way, way, way above the station of someone like Penniless Pierre uh, to even know, much less to be engaged to. Yeah, so this is a big frickin' deal for the dudes down at the bar. Yeah, so this mm. is this is some crazy, crazy stuff. So, finally, uh, Pierre calmed down the table, which was in an uproar, and he answered with a certain flare of indignation that what he offered to Marguerite was true love and a faithful heart, and that that was enough for her, and that unlike his listeners, the money was irrelevant to him. <laughs> that's so... Oh, man, that's, uh... I don't know. True don't, love, a faithful heart? Don't hmm. get too warm and fuzzy. Anyway, um... Uh, okay. So... And but Pierre, you know, still trying to be nice, even though they were kind of being jerks to him. And so he invited them to the wedding feast, which was to be held the next week at a local venue. And after that, he said goodnight and waddled away to find wherever he would tied up his donkey that he rode in on. <laughs> OK, <laughs> yes. I don't know why I put that detail in, but yes, I was he, did. Say, he, he did. He did ride a donkey. He did arrive on a donkey, and because he's kind of tall and lanky, his legs drag on the ground when the donkey <laughs> walks. That's that's in the sources, folks. That's history. Wow. <laughs> yep. Yep. Anyway, so after after Pierre was gone, everyone was silent for a bit. Um, but Lupion was stewing in resentment and jealousy. Because, you know, Marguerite was known not only as one of the richest, but also the most beautiful, eligible woman in town. And she was going to marry that worthless failure, Pierre. Mm. You know, this, 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 this was arousing some jealousy here. Oh, God. So after a few sort of tense, silent minutes, Lupion addressed the jacked farmer, Alut, and said he'd make a bet that the wedding wouldn't happen. Uh-oh. Alut was taken aback uh, by this sudden apparent turn to malice and uh, said that he had nothing against Pierre and that he wished him the best of luck. The other two friends, Solari and Chabar, um, just sort of stood there silently, seeing how it was going to play out. Mm. So having been rebuffed by Alut, uh, Lupion sort of changed his tack and played it off that he didn't mean he actually was going to try to fuck over Pierre's life, but that he just wanted to play some sort of joke on him. Since, sure. after all, he was about to become wealthy and married and live happily ever after, right? Surely it was fair game to play a little trick on him before that blissful state commenced. Right? Uh, right? I don't know. I don't know about this. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Solari and Chaubert immediately wanted in on the prank and demanded to know what Lupion had in mind for Pierre. Well, as it turns out, Pierre had been on friendly terms years before with an English painter who had stayed in Nîmes for a while 
and who was known to have connections to various French aristocrats of the pre-revolutionary regime. Hmm. So, Lupion explained, they would just send a note to the police with that information, saying that they suspected Pierre of being either an English agent or a conspirator with the Vendeans, who had uh -oh. not taken too kindly to being genocided and were always on the verge of another uprising. Oh, this is a great prank. There's no way this could go wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, secret police involved, like all the best pranks have that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so with the uh, the tense political situation of Napoleon's empire and its constant struggle against foreign powers like the British and internal dissent like the Vendeans, the police would uh, obviously take Pierre in for questioning, which would force the wedding to be delayed. But of course, Pierre wasn't an agent of anyone, and so the police would figure that out and they'd let him go, and then he'd have his delayed wedding. Solari and Chaubert thought this sounded hilarious and they were down for it. Um, God. But Alut was, uh, was pretty angry and he pounded the bar with his boulder of a fist and warned his friends off, saying that no good would come of such a joke and that he wanted no part in it. Man, the farmer knows what's going on. So uh, Lupion dismissed this warning and said, after all, if Marguerite really loved him so much, surely she could wait a little bit more time to get married, right? right. And if she couldn't, she obviously didn't really love him and they were basically doing a favor by fucking over his wedding. This is this is drunk logic right here. <laughs> oh my yeah, God. This, not a lot of sympathy for this guy. Anyway. Mm. So, uh, so Lupion got some paper and they wrote out their denouncement and went to drop it off at the police station where it was quickly forwarded on higher up the ladder as a potentially major security issue. Oh, God. Meanwhile, Pierre was enjoying a long walk with his fiancée, holding hands and strolling among the flowers and all that stuff that we can only dream about. And they were talking about the upcoming wedding. Uh, but Marguerite could tell that something was bothering Pierre, and eventually he came out with it and said that he had been mocked by his, for his poverty and accused of only wanting to marry her for her money, and that although he had invited the ones saying such things to their wedding, he was worried that they or others would try to convince her to break off the engagement and leave him. Mm. Mm. So Marguerite was taken aback by all this, since they had agreed to keep it all secret until the wedding, to avoid issues like this, obviously. But she tried to be supportive, while gently asking how it had come about that this conversation had happened. So uh, Pierre regained heart and confidently responded that they had nothing to be ashamed of, and since neither of them had living parents, there was no person with any right to impede or question their marriage, and he ended by saying that since they loved each other, they would be together forever and would never listen to any negative rumors designed to drive them apart. It's all, very, it's all very touching. And they soon finished their walk, kissed, and Pierre headed home, not knowing that he would never again kiss his beloved. Oh. No. Uh, oh, no. Oh. Yeah. Oh. So the following day, I uh, was busy with wedding preparations, so Pierre and Marguerite didn't have time to see each other for the romantic flower garden walk because they really? had wedding stuff all day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the day after that, however, Pierre left his house to go meet her for the final romantic walk before they got married. But as he turned back to the street to lock his door, a sack was thrown over his head and a rope quickly enveloped his wrists and ankles, and he was roughly hauled a few paces away and thrown into the back of an unmarked police carriage. What? 
Okay. They, they had those unmarked police carriages? I don't know. It, the description it, was vague, and so I decided it was an unmarked police carriage. <laughs> okay. It was definitely an inconspicuous police carriage, and calling it an unmarked police carriage just sounded good. That is funnier. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so as it turns out, his so-called friend's little practical joke turned out to be pretty serious. And the police pretty much had a policy of guilty until proven more guilty for anyone <laughs> under the slightest suspicion of working with the English or with the old nobility. And unfortunately, that English painter he had been friendly with once years earlier had, like decades before that, painted a picture of Queen Marie Antoinette. So, obviously, evidence, proof, or a trial were completely unnecessary since Pierre was so obviously a secret agent. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Meanwhile, uh, no one knew what had happened to Pierre, and Marguerite went all over town asking if anyone had seen him, and rumors flew around about what could have happened to the cobbler. Lupion, Chaubert, and Solari obviously had an idea about what might have happened to him, but they kept quiet, and they threatened to murder Alut and his family if he said anything to anyone. What great friends. Man, these guys are dicks. How did... They, these literally are like the shittiest people, aren't they? I was going to say, like, this guy is impoverished. And then one day he comes in and he's like, guys, I, got, I can't wait to tell you, like, but I'm going to get married. And they're like, to who? And he's like, I won't tell you. Because he knew, you know? It seems like yeah. he knew that they were the types. Yep. Shouldn't have, shouldn't have taken the fireball. That's how it always starts. Yep. Yep. So anyway, um, back to Pierre. After a long and painful ride in the unmarked carriage, he was lifted, carried some way, and then thrown onto a hard stone floor. Uh, the ropes finally slackened and were removed, and the sack was pulled off his head just as a heavy door swung shut and locked. Poor Pierre was in a tiny stone cell with no idea of where he was or why or how. He had not been Literally, no one said a single word to him. He was just kidnapped off the street and thrown in a police carriage. Well, he doesn't even know it's a police carriage because he's blindfolded. He just now knows he's in a cell somewhere. God, vanned in your own village. Unbelievable. So uh, the days and the nights were just blended together for Pierre because he's in a little stone cell. And he's just racking his brain trying to find a reason you know what had he done what did he said how you know what the hell was going on but no answers came and the jailers passing by in the hall or bringing him his nasty water and hard bread uh just sort of silently ignored his questions and shrugged off his request to talk to whoever was in charge of the prison so he doesn't even know like who you know is he being held by the french government like he does he literally just knows he's in a cell that's and nothing else Awful. Yep. God. Anyway, the uh, <clears throat> the FBI and the CIA could tell us about that. But oh moving on. Um, <laughs> moving on. So, um, Pierre Picot uh, rotted in his tiny little stone cell for over a year before oh, he even knew where he was. Finally, a jailer let slip to him that he was in a fortress dungeon in northern Italy outside of Turin, which was part of the French Empire at that point. God. So he's there for a year before he knows what country he's in. This is terrible. 
Yeah, yeah. So this revelation, revelation, which is the first piece of like communication or information he has received in over a year, sends him into paroxysms of anger and despair. And when the guard came to deliver his shitty daily ration, he lunged at the man and furiously attacked him. But a year in the dungeon had weakened the once vigorous cobbler and he was quickly subdued by the other guards who beat him into unconsciousness with their clubs. Uh, I know you. I, I I know you're thinking about memes, Aaron. Uh, about memes. <laughs> yes, our you know the various, the various political memes we send each other about mm, certain government forces in this country. Anyway. <laughs> So, uh, moving on. When, uh, when Pierre awoke, uh, there was an iron collar bound around his neck, and he was chained upright to iron rings set in stone, in a stone wall in an underground vault. And as punishment for his attack, he was struck 200 times with an iron rod, permanently mangling and disfiguring him, for even after his wounds healed and his bones reset, um, everything was crooked and out of place, and he was just a sort of broken man with crooked and twisted limbs, because he was literally hit 200 fucking times with an iron bar. God damn! Ah, that's... Okay, I watched the movie for Count of Monte Cristo. This is this worse. Sh this shit is way worse. <laughs> Holy yeah, shit. Exactly. Um, so a second year passed in the dungeon, and Pierre still had no idea why he was there. He knew that there was northern Italy, but he had no idea about anything else. His hair started to turn white, and the skin stretched over his deformed bones was pale and sickly. God. Through all this, he sort of kept his will to live by thinking of his beloved Marguerite, and assuring himself that somewhere she was waiting for his return. Oh. But there was another thought at the same time. Uh-oh. He started to think about how somebody had to have screwed him over, and that if he ever got out, it was going to be judgment day for whoever did that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um. So his uh, mental question of trying to figure out what had happened is probably the only thing that kept him, well, sort of sane through the months of solitary torment. And the longer he was there, he actually grew more calm and rational as his confinement lengthened. He, uh, you know, he realized there was no point in, um, doing something that might cause him to get beaten 200 times again, so he actually became quite humble and obedient to the guards, and really a model prisoner. Finally, after three more months of him being a model prisoner, he was allowed to take his iron collar off, which had been on his neck for over a year. God damn. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the, uh, the unyielding silence was so oppressive that any sound at all, even the distant clank of chains or a muffled scream somewhere, brought some relief to Pierre just by breaking the monotony. Yeah, uh, that, that makes sense. Yeah. So during the third year of his imprisonment, Pierre began to hear a very faint tapping somewhere. And finally, he was able to identify this tapping as coming from one of the walls of his cell. Uh, this vague communication, unexpectedly breaking the solitary routine of the prisoner, uh, was a cause of absolutely unspeakable joy, because, you know, the tapping was a sound a human being was making, and yeah. it's like the first communication he's gotten in years, and so he just taps back on the wall in frenzied enthusiasm until the incoming tapping faded away. Uh, sometime after this, Pierre was eating his nasty prison bread when his teeth felt something that wasn't bread 
or wasn't whatever the prison bread was actually made of. And that thing was a rolled up paper. By some means, someone had gotten a message slipped into a slit in his prison bread. Uh oh. Oh man. So he examined the paper and found that it was a brief note that outlined a system for communicating by wall taps, some sort of proto Norse, not Norse, Nor- Morse code. <laughs> Norse code. Norse code. Yes. Oh man. Norse code. So, um, by now I've lost my place. Absolutely professional. So yes, proto-Norse code. So uh, from that point (laughs) forward, uh, whenever the guards were not directly in the hall outside his cell, so like when they were at meals or something, uh, Pierre communicated with this other inmate through the wall, kind of like a sort of dark ages of AOL instant messenger. Oh my god, sending me back! Oh yeah. So Mm. in order to communicate his taps faster and more precisely without wrecking his knuckles, he used a little piece of iron chain that had been part of his neck collar, which the guards hadn't even bothered to take away after it was removed. They just kind of threw it on the floor and it stayed there. And so he used a little piece of chain from it as his tapping device. He's upgrading. And with this, uh, with this communication system in place, he was able to tap much more quickly, and he learned the story of his neighbor, who was an Italian priest from a very wealthy noble family. The priest, Father Giuseppe Tori, had been thrown into the dungeon more than ten years previous. Jeez, why? Um, we'll get we'll get to that in a bit. It's family intrigue. Oh, okay. Yep. So yeah, they're, with the tap system, it's very laborious, so they didn't really go into the full stories. Sure. Um, so Pierre also recounted, well, he didn't have much of a story at this point. He's just like, uh, yeah, I'm from France, and they threw me in here. Um, and that's all his story was, so he didn't have too much else to say. Uh, but he communicated that to the priest, and soon, through the tap system, they decided that they were going to carve an opening in the wall so that they might actually converse with their voices and basically hear a friendly voice for the first time in literal years. Oh, man. That's so... And this project took years. Literal years. Jesus. Uh, Pierre used a rock to eventually break the iron collar into several pieces, which served as chisels as he painstakingly scraped away at the stone all day, every oh day, gosh. for years. And he would also scratch markings in the wall to serve as a calendar to record the months. Uh, sometimes he would fall ill and spend weeks in delirious fever, not knowing, you know, day or night or time, and unable to communicate with taps nor mark the passing days. But every time when his strength returned, he would return to his scraping. Oh my gosh. Finally, in 1812, five years after his torment began, Uh, When his chisels were worn down to near mere nubs, a stroke of the iron produced not the normal grinding, scraping sounds, but a crumbling crack as the hole in the wall finally reached the other side. Oh, man. Yep. Pierre reached his hand through and felt the bony and frail hands of the old priest grasp his own emaciated hand in a joyful embrace. Because, you know, neither, neither of these people have, like, you know, seen, talked to, or touched another human being other than when they get their prison bread thrown to them for years and years. That's crazy. That that moment must have been something, you know, after yep. all that. Holy yep. shit. 
So with the opening done, uh, Pierre was able to hear the whole tale of Father Tori, who had been imprisoned due to a plot by his brother, who was an Italian nobleman who had inherited the noble title. He was the older brother. And he was trying to force him, uh, the priest, to relinquish the substantial fortune which had been his share of the family's inheritance and which the priest had hidden. And the priest would not reveal to his brother where the treasures were deposited, so he remained in the dungeon year after year. Um, since the brother just said, well, if you're not going to tell me where the treasure is, I'm just going to leave you there. Wow. Dick. <laughs> yep. Yep. And, uh... The fact that Pierre, that um, unlike Pierre, the priest was able to secure small favors from the guards, such as passing that note in the bread, and was also permitted some basic furniture in his cell, confirmed to Pierre's satisfaction that he was indeed a man of some importance and connections. Since, obviously, with as bad it is as, as it is in there, the fact that he's able to get some stuff means he's got to be really important in some way. Right, right. Man. I so, was going to um, say something, but you carry on. <laughs> yeah, so whatever and whatever gifts could be passed through the little tiny hole in the wall, the priest uh, shared with Pierre. Um, and, you know, extra food. Uh, he obtained medicine for him when Pierre fell ill. At one point, um, he was even able to get a bottle of, I don't remember what kind, some kind of alcohol, but obviously you can't pass a bottle through a tiny hole. So they had a little tiny cloth and the priest would soak the little tiny cloth in the alcohol and pass it through and he would squeeze out the drops until he could have a little drink. Oh, <laughs> that's the nicest priest ever. <laughs> yeah, no, re really MVP, uh, yeah, this priest. <laughs> like literally treating this other prisoner like Jesus, just soaking something with alcohol and offering it to him to drink. Oh, wow, I didn't even think of that. Jeez, yeah. 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 Wow. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, and he would even, like, obtain medicine and stuff when Pierre fell ill, which was pretty frequently because he was in pretty bad shape overall. And thus, uh, the time passed much more bearably than it had before since Pierre finally had a friend, a real friend, unlike those jerks. Yep. Um... <laughs> And in the second year after the opening was complete, however, the old priest fell ill with a fever, and uh, Pierre could hear only the old man's groans and delirious mutterings as he slowly succumbed to his illness on the other side of the stone wall. That's awful. But before he died, the priest pushed through the hole a paper packet containing information um, on the banks and accounts where his money was held and the hiding places to caches of gems and gold passed down by his family, and, finally, his will, which made Pierre his sole heir, along with various pieces of information which would be able to be used to attest to the authenticity of the will. Oh my god, this just got really interesting. <laughs> yeah, and so with the priest dead, because um, he died of the fever, um, Pierre sunk once again into a chasm of lonely despair um kept from madness only by the raging fire of anger that burned within him and his desire for revenge and by this point he would pretty much stopped thinking about you know love and marguerite and all that mm -hmm. he just wanted revenge yeah and you know i can kind of see why i mean i've been there <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, have you? I don't, no, I don't think. I don't no, think you've been quite here. No, no, no. <laughs> like, no you know bad, what I'm. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying. 
I'll never forget when we had to communicate through taps on the dorm room wall. Oh my god, the time when you had to send alcohol in a Kleenex. <laughs> yep. So anyway, um, yeah, not great for Pierre. The following year, however, which was 1814, so seven years in, Napoleon uh, was exiled for the first time, and his government toppled. And with the government being toppled, um, all the political prisoners held by the regime were just released. Oh. Uh, they just turned him loose. And so unexpectedly, after over seven years, they, Pierre just found himself literally escorted to the door of the prison and told, you're free to go. After Still doesn't know that. why he was there. Yeah. <laughs> like every bone in his body has been broken. He's like a wraith, but yeah. he's free to go. <laughs> a wraith. Yeah, like Pierre was a broken husk of a man at this point. He's twisted and contorted by all his bone breakings and just the drudgery of his captivity. Um, and when he was released, he actually had to wear a rag tied around his eyes since they hadn't seen the sun in seven years and light was unbearable to him. Oh my god. Yeah, the years of solitude and torment had pretty much turned the friendly cobbler into a wraith animated only by his thirst for revenge. Jeez. Oh my god, this is gonna be bad, isn't it? Oh, Jesus. Oh, it, it's it's gonna be really bad. Oh, god. So, uh, for weeks, he, uh, he hobbled his way towards Milan, kept alive uh, by gifts of food and shelter given by compassionate peasants he encountered. And finally, after weeks, he reached the city, and there in Milan, hidden in an old crypt just where Father Tori had indicated, he found the first cache of hidden treasure. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And so with, uh, with this gold, he was able to acquire clothes, a uh, servant, and all the appearances of a wealthy gentleman. And since he had the priest's documents and now didn't look as much like a ring wraith, um... He was able to visit the large cities of Europe and visit the banks and claim the deposits of the priest's wealth with the documents the priest had given him. He's getting armed. Yeah, and so he buys a country estate in France and is making ready to finally return to Nîmes to figure out what the hell had happened. But he falls ill again and actually spends the better part of a year convalescing in a medical home. But during this time, he didn't want to just do nothing, so he hired some agents to make inquiries about him and his fate. Yeah. Since do. he doesn't know, you know, he doesn't know, like, am I legally dead? Am I legally alive? Like, who is Pierre Picot? Mm-hmm. And he learned some things. He learned that Pierre Picot had disappeared in 1807, almost ten years earlier. And he also learned that Marguerite had spent over a year making inquiries and searching for him, but to no avail, because when he was taken into prison, he was put in prison under a false name since he'd never actually been tried for anything. Oh, uh, That was apparently a common thing. These political prisoners, they would just put them in prison under a made-up identity because the real person, you know, would have a, basically a clean legal status. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, he learned that... Uh, after two years of searching, pretty much, uh, Marguerite um, had gotten into some trouble because part of her search had involved paying bribes to government officials to look into it. And Marguerite was actually threatened by the government with prosecution for corruption. But a well-known local man, an innkeeper, 
Matthew Lupion persuaded her to marry him since the government was almost certain to give up the idea of prosecuting her if she was a, you know, legally a married woman instead of a free-floating heiress. Oh, uh, uh, I'm yeah. angry. <laughs> yep. And uh, the spies also had heard the drunken ramblings of a destitute farmer named Alut that he knew the real reason Pierre had disappeared, but he couldn't tell anyone. Man. And so when these pieces came together, a rage beyond human comprehension engulfed Pierre, and leaving the nursing home, he traveled at once to Nîmes, adopting on the way the identity of Father Baldini, an Italian priest. Here and when he gets uh, he gets to Nîmes and he finds that Alut is in fact very poor and miserable and married to a very unpleasant woman who constantly mocked, belittled, and abused him. Oh, God. And he also learned that a cousin of Alut had recently saved a Danish nobleman who had almost drowned in a river boating accident. So he dispatched one of his men with a very large sum of money instructing him to give it to Alut's cousin and tell him it is a gift of thanks from the Danish nobleman. Hmm. Interesting. It all come together. Yeah. And he then goes um, and he finds Alut and introduces himself as Father Baldini. He tells Alut that he had been imprisoned in Italy and had there met a young Frenchman named Pierre Picot, who shortly before dying had entrusted to his care an exquisite diamond, which had been given to him, that is Pierre, by a wealthy Englishman who had smuggled it into prison with him and had died there in prison. And so the story was that the Englishman gave this diamond to Pierre when he died, and Pierre gave it to Father Baldini when he died. Okay. And Pierre, according to Father Baldini, who is actually Pierre, said on his deathbed, had entrusted the diamond to him and asked him to travel to his hometown of Nîmes and give the diamond to whomever would reveal who was guilty of betraying him so that their treachery might become known. Ooh. The fake priest, who's actually Pierre, then revealed a massive diamond he had brought from his hoard, but Alut, trembling, refused to answer. Uh, Pierre then reminded him that Pierre was dead and that he died innocent of any crime and that satisfaction was due to him. Hmm. Alut was basically having conniptions of fear and terror and anger and everything else at this moment and was about to expel the priest from his shack when his wife returned. Honey, I'm home. <laughs> and she breathlessly relates that his cousin had just received a massive cash gift in thanks for saving some Danish nobleman, and that they would always be looked down upon and scorned by their wealthy relatives now, and that Alut was a rotten, worthless sack of shit she should never have married, and so on and so forth. God. Pierre sagely nodded and told Alut's wife that she was in fact correct. Her husband was an absolute idiot since he had just refused a jewel worth twice the windfall his cousin had received just in exchange for some harmless information. What kind of idiot would refuse such a fortune just for a little information? Hmm. Mm, so the, manipulative. the wrath of Alut's wife as she turned on him must have been terrible to see. Um, unable to resist such reckless hate, Alut finally agreed to the exchange, 
and Pierre helped him to sell the stone to the nearest jeweler. But Pierre intentionally negotiated a price that was less than half of what the stone was actually worth. Oh my god. Okay. So when the money was gotten, Alut told the fake priest the whole story about the letter sent by Lupion, Solari, and Chabot, and Pierre thanked him and went on his way. Soon after, Alut learned that the jeweler had turned around and sold the gem for twice what Alut had received for it, and his wife heard too, and she spat on him and reviled him all the more, so Mr. Anger Management Issues, or sorry, Monsieur Anger Management Issues, went and murdered the jeweler before fleeing the country. What? That's not fair. <laughs> I, I, t I said anger management issues. My God. Well, I mean, he was he was at the end of a long road of getting shat on. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So meanwhile, uh, Pierre had found that Lupion was now quite a wealthy man. He had used Marguerite's money to buy an extremely popular high class restaurant in Paris, and Solari and Chabot were regular customers there. Now the gang's all together. I was gonna say, they stuck together. Yeah, and uh, uh, completely unrelated to this, it just happened that a little old lady arrived at the restaurant one day and requested to see Lupion. And she told him that she was leaving France to travel for the rest of her life, but that she had a very old, very faithful servant who had been with her for decades, but who was not physically up to the demands of travel. She was, she said, very fond of this old servant, and so she proposed that she pay Lupion a rather nice monthly salary in exchange for him hiring the old servant as a waiter at a much lower salary than Lupion was receiving, of course. That way, she said, the old man wouldn't feel worthless and abandoned, and Lupion would basically get a free servant plus extra cash on top. Hmm. Obviously, he snatched that deal right up and hired the old servant who went by the name of Joseph. So he hires this old man as a waiter in the restaurant. The servant was very old, and he looked very frail and brittle, and somewhat deformed and hunched by old age. Mm. But what they didn't know that this old servant was Pierre Picot. Oh my god, it's all, it's all coming home. Mm. Oh yeah, and Joseph was an attentive and respectful servant, and soon became a favorite waiter at the restaurant. And every day working, he passed right before the unknowing eyes of Lupion, Marguerite, Chabard, and Solari as they're drinking their coffee or whatever it is they were doing. Oh, dear He's God. just there. Not too long after this, a funny thing happened. The body of Gervais Chabard was found with a dagger stuck in his chest, pinning to his corpse a note that said, Number one. Oh, shit. It's going down. <laughs> The police investigated, but they never found any clue or learned of any potential enemy who might want to murder Shelbar. Hmm. So, eventually, the case was abandoned. All the while, Pierre continued to serve Lupion as the waiter Joseph. Hmm. So, wait, the who, was yep. the, who was the old woman? Just someone, you know, remember, this man is, is... Modern equivalent has hundreds of millions of dollars. He has, you know mistakes like he has hundreds of people who work for him oh my god yeah <laughs> so he can he can afford whatever he wants yeah yep um so uh the next year 
Uh, Lupion's 18-year-old daughter, who was from a previous marriage before he was married to Marguerite, was courted by a mysterious and handsome young man of great wealth, uh, whom, who had many, many servants who all addressed him as Marquis. He was a nobleman. Uh-oh. He came night after night to the restaurant to see and woo Lupion's daughter, and finally, um, he seduced her and an affair began. Mm. Lupion learned of this and went to confront the nobleman about the illicit relationship. But as the meeting commenced, the man proclaimed that his intention was to marry the daughter. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, the Marquis, as he was called, said he was planning a massive wedding feast with the finest and most expensive of everything, all to be paid for by him, of course. The greedy Lupion was overjoyed for such wealth to be marrying into his family, and so, yeah, okay, you know, the affair, whatever, I don't care, you know, I'm about to get this, like, incredibly wealthy man as a son-in-law. Oh, God, this guy's so greedy! Yeah, you know, he's a real jerk, isn't he? Yep. So, um, he's like, oh, well, yeah, in that case, awesome. And so, the all the preparations are made for this massive wedding feast. Hundreds of people are invited, um, because Lupion is obviously... Definitely a guy who wants to be seen as important. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wants to, you know, be a social climber. So he's inviting all these people to this lavish celebration. But when the feast was about to commence, the husband was nowhere to be found. Mm. Whispers flew, and it seemed like a great scandal was about to erupt when a messenger arrived to the feast in haste and announced that his lord, the Marquis, had been summoned on important state business by the king and would return you know, as soon as he could, before the evening was done. And so everybody, just go back to your drinks, you know, it's fine, just a, you know, little hiccup. I gotta handle something with the king, I'll be right back. (laughs) So the feasting and dancing resumed, and Lupion was even more excited because his son-in-law was so rich and important that he, you know, just worked directly with the king on a Tuesday night. (laughs) Like, you know, he's just... He is thrilled. Oh my god. Finally, it was time for dessert to be served, and no Marquis had arrived yet. But the desserts came out, but each plate had a note on it saying, The son-in-law of Monsieur Lupion is a common galley felon and murderer who has fled the country. Wait a second. The son So the, the Marquis. Oh, the Marquis, oh! The Marquis was a convicted murderer, and all of this had been paid for by Pierre, all to humiliate Lupion. Oh my god. <laughs> Yeah. So, and this is in front of, you know, all the high society people that Lupion has invited to this alleged wedding between his daughter and this nobleman. They all get a note saying, oh, the son-in-law is actually a convicted murderer who's on the run. Oh my God, that would be uh, hella embarrassing and a very, very big PR nightmare for uh, I don't think that even begins to touch it. (laughs) I don't think PR nightmare really even scratches the surface of this. Oh man. And suddenly, um, right after the notes are delivered, the feast was stormed by the police, who had been tipped off that a notorious murderer and galley slave who had escaped was there. And obviously this is the son-in-law, and they don't find him there, but, you know, Lupion's reputation is in, is in shatters, because all <laughs> shatters, the high society shambles, people... Shambles, tatters. Sham, sorry, shatters, oh, yeah, anyway. It is in tatters, because all these high society people have just seen... In the course of a couple hours, it go from my daughter's marrying a marquis to I accidentally married my daughter to a murderer to the police just rushed in and, like, trashed the wedding party because they got a tip-off that the murderer was here. 
So after this wedding debacle, um, very quickly, within a matter of days, his daughter falls ill and actually dies. Oh, my God. Um, Maybe just because of how much her wedding sucked or because it's the 19th century and people die a lot of sickness, it seems. True. But in any case, um, after the world's literal worst wedding, she dies soon after. And that very same week, a ravenous fire gutted the entirety of Lupion's restaurant and home, destroying his entire livelihood and wealth. Well, sucks to suck. Yep. Uh, so Lupion still had a little tiny bit of credit left and was able to take out a small loan of $1 million, sorry, um, to <laughs> open a tiny, grimy, low-class cafe. Okay. Like the type of place that reheats pizza. Downgrade. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he went from basically owning the most exclusive restaurant in Paris to owning like a newspaper stand that sells coffee. On the <laughs> I was going to say like a, a little Caesars franchise. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's worse than that, honestly. But yeah, it's bad. Uh. It's bad. Meanwhile, uh, the faithful servant Joseph continued by his side refusing to leave even when Lupion could not afford to pay him any wages at all. Suspicious. Joseph just sticks by him. Mm -hmm. Inspirational, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> but just when it seemed like Lupion was settling into this new life, uh, much shittier and poorer than his previous life, but at least, like, finally a settled life, his old friend Guillaume Salari comes to dinner at the cafe and on his walk back home, dies convulsing in agony on the sidewalk. Ooh. So police immediately arrest Lupion since he had served um, Solari the food that had apparently poisoned him. But when they undressed the body, they found that uh, pinned to his coat was a little bitty note reading number two. Uh-oh. Oh, God. Wait, hang on. How did he get the note on him? Because remember, he's a waiter in the restaurant, so while he's eating the poison dinner, he just sticks the note on his coat, and then when they, the police are searching the body, they find it. Right, okay, that makes sense. Yep. Okay. So, although Lupion was released, um, the rumor that a diner had been poisoned at his restaurant ruined what little business he had, and he and Marguerite were plunged into abject poverty, not even any Little Caesars. Oh, anymore. man. Um, like, it's like a abandoned Little Caesars now. <laughs> One day, however, a uh, a goldsmith began frequenting the diner and, um, you know, getting his morning coffee or whatever and, you know, chatting with the people and got to know them. And eventually he suggested that Lupion's young son, um, so his son with Marguerite, um, could become an apprentice in his goldsmith workshop, which could be a good way for him to eventually help his family out of poverty. You know, Lupion eagerly agrees, since he knows there is, unsurprisingly, a lot of money in being a goldsmith if you're good at it. Mm -hmm. But uh, one evening, not too long after that, uh, police suddenly burst into the cafe, accompanied by the goldsmith, who pointed out Lupion's son and accused him of stealing some valuable gold pieces from the shop. And sure enough, when the police searched the home, they found the gold hidden under the son's bed. I smell a false flag. Who could have put it there? <laughs> who would have had access to the home? Literally who? 
<sighs> anyway, and uh, the son was sentenced to life servitude as a slave rower on a galley ship. Oh, that's harsh as fuck, though. <laughs> the 19th century was really bad. <laughs> and the news of this latest tragedy was brought to Marguerite by none other than the old waiter Joseph, who finally cast aside the character of the waiter and wickedly intoned, Your son will now taste the horrors of imprisonment just as I did, and revealed himself to be none other than Pierre Picot. Oh my god. Yeah, um, and Marguerite just kind of staring and has no idea what's going on. <laughs> Look at me, he said. Look at me, do you know me? I am all that your husband's vile plotting has left of Pierre Picot, once young and handsome, once your lover. Oh. And Marguerite fainted. No shit. <laughs> and Pierre rushed off to find Lupion. He found him pacing on a seldom used path by a stream, um, or whatever counts for as a stream in Paris. It's probably like a trash canal. Anyway, um... <laughs> And he approaches him, declaring, So, Lupion, your money has gone. Your daughter is dead. Your son will spend the rest of his days in the galley. And both Solari and Chauvin are burning in hell. Is my vengeance finished, do you think? Uh, who are you? <laughs> demanded <laughs> Lupion, but he 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 already knew. Like yeah. uh, it's a lot. It's a lot of details there. Mm -hmm. He already knew. But you know, Pierre Picot, just like vengeance wraith, doesn't want to uh, you know miss a moment to get his whole drama in. So he responds, "Who am I? Don't you know? I am that wretched Pierre Picot whose life you ruined, whom you made an old man before he was forty. Now, go and rejoin your friends. And with that, Pierre drove a knife into Lupion's chest and departed. Holy shit. <laughs> oh. Well, he's getting his revenge, that's for sure. Mm, that, would, that would technically be number three, I mm -hmm. guess. But before uh, Pierre was able to leave the city, he once again felt a sack fly down over his head and arms seize his limbs, which... <laughs> This, we had this happen before. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the whole deal, he's moved somewhere. He doesn't know where. But when the sack is removed, Pierre finds himself in a cave chamber, part of the ancient catacombs under Paris, which are crazy and you should look up, by the way, because it's literally miles and miles and miles and miles of m catacombs under the city, many of which are unmapped, but almost all of which, if you can do some spelunking and basic stuff, are technically accessible. Whoa, I didn't know that. I'll have to check that out next time. Yeah, I'm there's in a Paris. couple there's a couple couple horror movies um with the premise of like getting stuck down there. But Oof. anyway, cool thing to look up, Paris Catacombs. So he's in some cave chamber in the catacombs under Paris. And across the room in a chair sat, sat none other than Antoine Alut, who had evaded capture for the murder of the jeweler. Oh god. Yep. So, what had happened is he had fled the country with his wife, who had then died while they were in Greece, after which he was captured and put on a, on a, uh, a ship as a slave rower, but he escaped and he had gone in vengeful search 
of the father Baldini, who had given him the diamond and thus launched his downfall. But when he got to the place Father Baldini had introduced himself as being from, he found that no Father Baldini had ever existed there in that mm. diocese. Mm. And then when he hears about um, Chobar being stabbed to death, uh, it begins to come together, and he gets an idea of who the priest might be. Mm. And so he began searching for the other friends to warn them of the monster unleashed upon them, but it was too late for Lupion and Solary, and it was pretty much also too late for Pierre. Because years of torment followed by years of immense wealth and single-minded dedication to vengeance had turned Pierre into a just absolute monster. Um, and with his work of revenge completed, uh, his wealth was basically the only thing that animated him anymore. Hmm. Yeah, no, no love, no life. Just I've killed all the people, and now I have all my my money. And yeah, so basically, the wealth was the only thing that had any meaning for him. And as he's there, you know, in this little dungeon, Pierre protests that he was hungry and thirsty, and requested food and drink. Uh, to which Alut, who had learned of Pierre's massive wealth when he was making inquiries, replied that he would gladly sell Pierre sustenance. Oh, man. But since the wealth was the only thing that meant anything to him anymore, Pierre refused. So Alut fastened him to the wall with a chain and left the room. The next day he returned, and Pierre once again begged for bread and water, and Alut responded that he could have it for a thousand gold coins for each loaf and jug. Ugh. And although he could have easily afforded it, um... And his, you know, twisted body was all famished and parched. Uh, Pierre refused, um, but screamed in rage and wailed. So Alut left once again. And when he returned the following day, the scene was repeated. And he uh, he kept lowering the price. Um, and you know, Pierre refused to pay even a single penny because he had just fixated on his wealth. Mm. And finally, Alut uh, decided to kill him. And he drove a knife into the chest of Pierre, who is chained to the wall, and just leaves him hanging there, while he flees Paris and begins to make his way to the coast to try to get passage to England. God. And, yep, um, so although she did die soon after, um, upon recovering from her faint, Marguerite had told the police about Pierre, and they had been canvassing the area of Paris where Lupion was killed, and a tip directed them to the catacomb chamber where Alut had kept Pierre, so like somebody saw somebody coming out of a hole in the ground or a manhole or something. Sure. And the police get a tip, and they get into the dungeon, and they find that Pierre was actually still vaguely alive, because the knife had missed everything vital. It hadn't actually punctured anything too important. So he's just there, chained to the wall with a knife in him. That's awful. And, like, starving. Just, Jesus. Although he was able to be kept alive for a while with medical attention, uh, the years in the dungeon had ravaged Pierre's body, and he was unable to recover from the latest imprisonment and stabbing, and died soon after. But not before giving an interview to the police and confessing his murders. And this is like a long interview, and they were writing it all down, and he told them pretty much the whole story about how all this stuff went down. Because um, he knew he's dying, so he decides, oh, what the heck. Let's, yeah. let's get it in writing. 
Alut eventually made it to England, uh, but he didn't have the right antibodies or something, and he fell sick almost immediately upon his arrival and also died. Okay. Uh, though he requested a priest, um, and on his deathbed he not only repented and confessed his sins, but he also decided to tell the whole story that he knew about, you know, the, the friends and the betraying Pierre and all that and how it all gone down, and he has it all written down before he dies. And after his death, uh, the priest, who had written down for him after, you know, giving him the last rites and everything, um, sent a copy of this transcription to the Paris police. And among the, uh, you know, more mundane details of stuff of how it all went down, this testament also has a really, really interesting and kind of scary thing in it. It claims... Um, Alut claimed that he was visited by the ghost of the old priest, Father Tori, who had asked him to kill Pierre before he be could become more of a monster, and that's why he'd finally stabbed him. Whoa. So, like, that the Sally from Beyond the Grave visited Alut, or whatever, to tell him to stop the monster of Pierre Picot? Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> this is what he put in his deathbed, you know, statement anyway. I can't tell you if it's true or not. I'm just telling you what it was. Oh my god, that is unbelievably badass. <laughs> yeah, it's it's this is all a really wild story. I know. Um, so yeah, the uh, the confessions of Pierre and Alut formed the bulk of the police file together with various other, you know, relevant interviews, pieces of written evidence, police reports and such, all of which was put together into one sort of big cohesive bundle by an enterprising police archivist uh, later in the 19th century. And it was this uh, this big file that Alexander Dumas consulted and took inspiration from for the Count of Monte Cristo. And apparently, according to a guy who looked at the file in 1931, Dumas actually left a lot of his own notes and marginalia in the file as he was sort of trying to put different parts of the story together for his book. Whoa. And so, yeah, my main source of material for all this uh, was the book written by that guy in 1931. And this dude's name was Harry Ashton Wolf. And this is where it gets kind of sketchy. He was both a writer of fiction and also a detective who worked all over Europe and wrote nonfiction memoirs of cases he was involved in, as well as nonfiction books of various notorious cases from, you know, these archives that he had access to with his work. And unfortunately, it's not always super clear where the lines are between when he's writing fiction and embellishing and when he's writing nonfiction. And sometimes it seems to be sort of a blend, uh, since in some of his books, you know, some parts can be completely corroborated by outside evidence and other parts can be completely disproved by outside evidence. But, um, from what is obvious, it seems that the stories that tend to sort of insert fiction into it seem to be the ones that he either was personally involved in, cases he tended to embellish, or ones that had a main character who seemed to closely resemble him. So, in light of the fact that this story has nothing to do with him, and since it is very clear, um, not only from him, but from other people who mention it, that the Count of Monte Cristo was based on this, and that, you know, Alexander Dumas went and looked at these files long before this guy was alive, it does seem that the general elements of the story are pretty much as he found them in the police archives, and he just kind of, you know, put it together and translated it into English. And, uh, yeah, with that, I am about ready to, to wrap this up and, like, 
go pray or something because this got really dark and brutal. I know, but like it, it's such a, it's such a, I don't know. Like the guy we did last week, it's such a, it's such it's oh man, what's the word? It's a microcosm of sort of these moral problems that people are introduced to when they have to go through pain and suffering. Yeah, no, because it's like for the whole first part, you're like, yeah, I can't wait till Pierre, you know, does it to him. And then by the time we're there, it's like, oh, God, make it stop. Like, he's like having the guy's son put in a slave ship for life. And like, it's like, dude, I don't know. I don't know about this, chief. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the scam with Alut um, and the diamond or whatever, like. That's, you know, that's like some low-key revenge, you know, Alut gets picked on by his wife a little bit more, you know, like, I don't know, that's one thing, but like, going after his son and his daughter, and, or rather, um, the other guy, what's his name? Yeah, um, Lupion. Lupion. Um, that's when you're starting to go like, okay, so, this isn't just like, getting even, this is sort of a, almost, overexertion of dominance. Basically, the only good guy in this story is the priest who died in the dungeon. I know, and he he was good <laughs> through the end. I mean, he went to, <laughs> went to a loot, and he's like, "Yo, dude, you've got to stop this man." Um, but yeah, yeah, I, no, I, go ghost ghost priest ordering a hit is pretty pretty baller. If I'm gonna be honest, yeah. Well, and that's that's where um, I'm you know thinking about Selkirk last week. You know, he was put in a situation where he was isolated. Um, he was depressed, he was dealing with all this really bad shit on this island, but nonetheless, he still was able to run around an island and learn how to fix things and, like, build houses and, you know, hunt and all that stuff. Um, he could keep his mind occupied, but when you have a guy like Picot, who's stuck in a cell for nearly ten years and only gets to talk to one other person, and, and even that, that... That only after several years. Yeah, who then dies on you and gives you a massive fortune... It's like, what are you going to do with it? The love of your life's gone. Um, you are a broken person, disfigured and hideous. And now you have access to all this money, your sudden freedom. It's not fair what happened to him, but it's still, you still wonder, like, what was it in that insane man's mind that made him want to go so far? But you wonder to yourself, like, what else could he have done when he got out? You know? Yeah, no, I mean, it's put it this way. He he may have gotten out of the dungeon, but I think it was pretty clear the dungeon was never getting out of him. Yeah. Man. You don't really come back from something like that. Yeah. Whew. Well, that was nonetheless a fascinating story. But I think it's time to head to the surface. <laughs> Pray with me, Aaron. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, Aaron, now that you're all snugly settled back up north, you've got to tell me, do you miss living in Texas? Uh, no, I don't, I don't miss it at all. I mean, it's freezing cold up here. It's, it's literally, you know, hard to stay warm no matter where you are. Um, but no, I don't miss it. I miss Texans. Uh, do you miss living in Texas, though? 
Well, I mean, it's been a little bit longer for me, obviously. Um, but no, I mean, I there are some things I really liked about Texas. Um, obviously, there were there were great people. I do have to say, yeah, some amazingly wonderful people. Um, couple not wonderful people, but mostly amazing, wonderful people. Um, but on the whole, I'm I'm happy to be, you know, back in the back in the frozen north. Yeah. Born with the frost in your blood, you never quite get away from that, you know. Does that come out on a breathalyzer? Uh, yes, it does. <laughs> Damn it. They're like, fuck. He's reading at 0.15% frost giant. <laughs> oh, God, he's communicating in Norse code. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Anyway, that was a fake question. So here's the real question. Um, what is your favorite topic that we've covered recently and why? Oh, man. I'd have to think about that for just a second. Uh... I really liked Selkirk last week, but that was, you know, a single story. The topic that I would say I've gotten the most out of has been like the Knights of Malta, Charles Martel, Charlemagne, all those. Those are very motivational for me. And I feel like really like I I feel inspired listening to those stories, Um, not to toot our own horn here, but those are your episodes, so. And we've gotten, yeah, we've gotten a lot of great feedback about the sort of medieval stuff we were doing. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. no, definitely those. I mean, I really enjoyed making them, so I'm glad they're glad they're well received by my dear co-host. <laughs> so, what's your uh, what's your favorite topic? Oh, that's stuff. I mean, I kind of liked. I mean, I did like, I mean, I made it. I really like getting to do the Skanderbeg one because it gave me a lot of excuses to talk about Indo-European linguistics, which, you know, the, it doesn't come up on first dates a lot. I did. Um, I believe that for some reason. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. So I don't, I don't often get a chance. And I mean, let's face it. The only reason I would go on a date is to try to lure someone in to hear me talk about Indo-European linguistics. <laughs> so I don't get a lot of opportunity. So I just had fun being that it's a topic, you know, Albania, who knows anything about Albania that, right. you know, there's not a lot of preconceived stuff going in. So it was fun getting to just sort of explore a lot of background and try to really quickly give people like a little bit of a an inside situated view of the history. Yeah. That actually reminds me, I really like covering Swedenborg because um, he was just so freaking crazy. And I didn't know anything about that whole natural philosophy and all that shit. I didn't know much about that realm. I knew some stuff, um, but being able to go into it sort of fresh and being like, teach me, you know, tell me everything. I want to know it all. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a fun feeling. Um, I really like I really like going into new territory. It takes me longer to write the episodes, but it is it is more fun to go into unfamiliar territory. Yeah, no, absolutely, I agree. That's why the Ceausescu episodes were among my favorites, is because they were just I knew nothing about Romania, and I got to get a a nice little look in. So, yeah. Well, is it time to close the show? I think it's time to close the show. And with that, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right. So consider funding the show by becoming a, a becoming a patron on Patreon.com. Like Dylan, he's amazing. Uh, <laughs> if Patreon is not your thing, you can drop us a little tip in Venmo, and our handle on there is at WTADP. 
Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration, soon to be updated, I'm sure, if I ever get myself around to it. Um, you can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of revenge play you out. Now my dark purpose will be fulfilled, and the last of the Romanoffs will die! In the dark of the night I was tossing and turning, and the nightmare I had was as bad as can be. It scared me out of my wits, a corpse falling to bits. Then I opened my eyes and the nightmare was me! I was once the most mystical man in all Russia. When the royals betrayed me, they made a mistake. My curse made each of them pay, but one little girl got away. Little Anya, beware, Rasputin's awake! Will be sweet when the curse is complete. In the dark of the night, she'll be gone. Oh, hi, ladies. Listen, thank I can feel that my powers are slowly returning. <laughs> Tie my sash and a dash of cologne for that smell. As the pieces fall into place, I'll see her crawl into place. Your Svetanya, Anya, your grace. Farewell. Tell us the least I can do. Soon she will feel that her nightmares are real. In the dark of the night, she'll be ruined. My dear, here's a sign. It's the end of the line. In the dark of the night. In the dark of the night. Come, my minions, rise for your master. Let your ears.